0: welcome back everybody to edge of the rabbit hole i'm author and researcher mike ricksecker with me as always my co-host is victoria monday and down in the chat room alina moderating the chat we have a fantastic show coming up for you tonight we're going to get deep into alchemy tonight with robert bosnack now robert has been a trained Jungian cycle analyst for over 40 years and pioneered the embodied imagination method really interested to hear about this He's the author of several books, nonfiction and fiction translated into a wide variety of languages. He is past president of the International Association for the Study of Dreams. I'm also interested in that and founder mm-hmm. of the Santa Barbara Healing Sanctuary. Robert, welcome to the show this evening. Glad to have you aboard.
1: Thank you very much for having me on this rabbit hole.
0: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of topics we could really start with you. Um I want to start with alchemy. We have other topics here that we could also discuss uh, because you, you have a number of books that you've written. Uh, like we said, both nonfiction and fiction, uh, many of them focusing on alchemy. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: let's especially get into what. My, al- uh,
1: yeah, especially yeah, my ahead. work on fiction. Um, mm-hmm. I have studied alchemy for 50 years now, and um, I'm beginning to slowly get a little bit of it. Um My book's called Red Sulfur. It's a series of uh, four novels. And these four novels are about an alchemist family who are in possession of the Sorcerer's Stone or the Philosopher's Stone. And it's the last Philosopher's Stone in history. It was made 200 years ago and they have it. And uh, they have to carry it through history and they're being pursued by kings who want to use it to um, make gold and by phantoms and um, it is the history of alchemy it's the history of alchemy in fiction and in a very um, I think very exciting triangular relationship between um, two um, uh, women who uh, help him to go through the um, to, who to create the red sulfur, to make more red sulfur. They have children that are being pursued. It's, um, it's a, a work of uh, magical realism and a little bit like uh, the um, uh, the heroes, the, the superhero stories. And um, if you want to learn about alchemy, it's a great way to learn. And I think it's a very exciting series of novels. You can find them at Amazon.
2: And there's four of them, right?
1: Right. There's four of okay. them. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a series. Okay. That sounds yeah, exciting. Yeah, I'm trying to
0: I'm trying to bring the like you said, Victoria, Mercury. I'm trying to bring <laughs> the, uh, the the one cover up here in the systems just not working for me right now. There it is. There we go. Oh.
1: Uh, that's that's the that's the cover for the first edition. Um we are now having a second revised edition and um this is books one and two and now book three and four are out as well and um you can find them all on uh, on amazon and uh, i it took me about 10 years to write it and it's uh, uh, it's the most complete work on alchemy fiction that i have ever seen so i'm very excited and proud of it yeah
0: yeah now when people think of uh, the Philosopher's Stone, uh, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of people have been introduced to this idea in modern times, you know, through the Harry Potter books. The Philosopher's Stone, Nicholas Flamel was mentioned in there, and you know, mm-hmm. Nicholas Flamel, however, is a real historical figure. So, does he play a part uh, in this book or in, in this no, set of
1: books? Um, No. Nicholas Formel is from the 15th century, 14th, 15th century, and my book is taking place in the 17th century. The interesting part of the 17th century and alchemy is where alchemy is coming together with science, and there is the emergence of science that that slowly begins to rise. The church is very much trying to repress science, so there's a war going on in Europe between uh, the people that are pro-science and the people that try to repress it. It's an actual war. So this is set in actual Europe of the 17th century. Flamel was uh, said together with his uh, wife Petronella, I think, uh, to have made the Philosopher's Stone. Um, The Philosopher's Stone and all of alchemy is usually done between men and women. So there's a man and a woman and the erotic tension between them helps them to create the stone because the stone is alive. The Philosopher's Stone is alive. It's a living form. It's a living um, animation form. It, it it animates the world. It animates the metals. And as it animates the metals, it transforms them. So it's alive, and therefore it works better in a relationship. And that's why Flamel had a relationship with his wife, and they work very strongly together. In this novel, it's a relationship between... Um, One of the women who cannot have children and the um, and the stone has to be passed along in the line of this alchemist that comes from his ancestors. So she says, well, my daughter or the person who she brought up as her daughter can have the children for us. And that, of course, creates havoc and that havoc goes on for a long period of time. And they then have each a child. And that's the continuation of the story
0: that's absolutely fascinating (laughs) and so and and it's interesting when you when you read fiction like that because you are incorporating a lot of real history and intertwining it within this fictional story yes I always find that a fascinating way for people to learn about history. they're being entertained with the with the fictional story but they're also learning as well
1: that's the idea and um the 17th century was really important because We are living in in a world of science and we think that um, science is the norm, but there was an enormous shift happening then because alchemy and science were very different. Um, Alchemy was a different kind of science because um, what happened in the 17th century is that there became a split between the subject, me, and the object over there. When alchemy was there, there was no, no such split everything around was alive, the metals were alive, and there was a communication between the living metals and the alchemist. So it was a subject-to-subject communication. And that actually ended in the 17th century at the beginning of science. And this book also shows that we gained a lot. I mean, we're talking through computers to each other uh, on different ends of the world, but we also lost a lot. And this also... tells the story of what we lost
0: interesting so when you talk about and, and i find it fascinating that you're using the term living metal so are we talking about metal that has a, a specific in energy inter intergrained within it or what are you referring to um, with living metal
1: yes um well the word energy is a very modern word right we are currently seeing that um, the, the basic law currently of um, energy is relativity theory. It's ESMC squared. So um, the notion is that when you go to the core of the atom, you will find enormous amounts of energy. That's the nuclear bomb. That's nuclear energy. For the alchemist, it was different. For the alchemists, it was when you would go to the core of the atom, because there were many alchemists who were also atomists. When you go to the core of the atom, you find the source of creativity. It is not energy, it is creative force. It is animation. So what the alchemists were doing is by going to the core of things, they were not trying to create energy, they were trying to access the creative force that created the world to begin with. Because they live in a world of creation. They live in a world of constant creation. And um, we live in a world that maybe once was created, but Now we are living in a world of laws. This was the world before there were these general laws that we live in after Newton. Newton is also an important part of this book.
2: Okay, now I have a question. (laughs) Great. Okay, um, I heard you speak earlier, and you were talking about Richard Feynman, um, Mm -hmm. who was doing the Manhattan Project, and you said he was um, using physical intuition, uh, meaning he was like. He was using his body. He was actually the elements or something like that. Um, is that a way to manifest? And is uh, that different from physical intuition?
1: Um, well, uh, physical the physical intuition that he used, he was a quantum physicist. Or oh,
2: I'm sorry, and, I meant embodied, uh, embodied
1: yeah, intuition. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, no, I think it's similar. It's just his word. Uh, was physical intuition, the word that he used. Okay. And uh, he says that scientists, and he thereby went back to the alchemical way of working. He mm-hmm. said that scientists have to use their uh, their physical intuition and and um, When a student would come into his room, he would be rolling all over the floor and moving his arms. And then he said, what I'm doing is I'm following with my body the wiggle, wiggle and the jiggle, jiggle of all these trajectories of these quantum uh, elements. And as I do that, I begin to sense them and I get a very vague sense of them. And as I feel them in my body, then I start the mathematics. And um, in the Manhattan Project, When Oppenheimer would have a problem and he couldn't solve it, he would give it to Richard Feynman because Feynman could really get into it with his whole body and become identified with the issue. And then out of that identification, he would start writing the math. And he was incredibly creative that way.
2: So how is that different from embodied intelligence? Or are they
1: the same? Um, Uh, I think it's the same. The the notion of embodied intelligence uh, also very much comes from alchemy. Um, It is the way that the body can know things that the mind doesn't know. So, um, for instance, uh, when the alchemist would be working on lead, um, they could feel the heaviness of lead, but it would go all through the body. And it would be the melancholy of lead, and it would be the weight downness of lead. So you get it throughout your whole body when you work with lead. You get all this sense of heaviness. When you work with gold, it's very up and it's very much solar and it's the mo- and it's it's the the sun. And when you when you work on the moon. It's night and, and and all kinds of magical things are happening. And you can feel all these things, and that is embodied intuition. You are okay. part of the substance that you're working with.
2: Cool. So could you say that alchemy is part of quantum physics? Is that um, a fair assumption?
1: Uh, I think that um, neither alchemists nor quantum physicists would recognize each other in that. <laughs> uh, I, I think that... Um, uh, what there is similarity is that um, you can use the methods that the alchemist were using, using the body to do science. And I think that um, more people are doing that now and that you can use the imagination to, for science, because for instance, Einstein, when he was working on the relativity principle, he was uh, imagining himself with his whole body flying along a, li- a light beam so he was flying along and as he was flying along he was beginning to understand what this was all about and from there he started to create the relativity theory so uh, that kind of embodied imagination uh, is being used both in alchemy and in um, in science there was a time in the in the 19, in the 20th century when they tried to cut out all imagination they said just shut up and calculate and um that was heisenberg and that and but uh, um uh, feynman was the one who said you can't do that you have to use imagination without imagination it doesn't work
2: That's funny, because I was, I'm sorry, as I was um, digging a little bit deeper today, I kept coming back to Willy Wonka, and that song, you have to live in a world (laughs) of pure imagination. And Mm -hmm. I started thinking, well, that's exactly what it is, because you're manipulating and you're manifesting your dreams. So that would be kind of like embodiment, right?
1: Yes, that would be the embodiment of imagination. And we're constantly being embodied by imagination. Because um, when you imagine, let's go uh, lead, when you imagine something really sad, then your whole body is yeah. influenced by that sadness. It's an embodied feeling. Emotions are fully embodied. Emotions are not in your mind. Emotions are fully throughout your body. And uh, imagination, the same thing.
2: Okay. Awesome. Okay. I defer to Mike now. Okay. No, so,
1: <laughs> so what
0: does the modern alchemist look like?
1: Um, well... Uh, I am um, not in a laboratory like that that beautiful picture that you gave in the in the opening. Um, I am not in a laboratory. I am sitting with people. I'm a psychoanalyst. And so I work with imagery. Um, because my notion is um, that uh, I'm specialized in dreaming and um, I have um, worked with dreams for 50 years and have worked uh, professionally with about 45,000 dreams. So I am um, very interested in that aspect. Now, when you're in a dream, then everything around you is real. The world around you is entirely real, and you know that you're awake. You don't think you're awake. You know you're awake while you're dreaming. So um, in the dream, you're in a quasi-physical reality because you wake up and then you realize, oh, this wasn't physical reality. It's another kind of reality. So we're constantly in this other kind of reality. So um, the world of alchemy that I work with is about quasi-physical reality, the world of imagination. And you can do these alchemical processes with the creative imagination and therefore you can uh, you can become transformed by working with alchemy so you can become more subtle you can become more enriched you can go deeper you can gain more value so it's very important for everyday life
0: that's extremely interesting i've in in the past i've had it doesn't happen often but there are times in which you know I'm, i'm lucid dreaming and i know that i'm dreaming and i'm able to manipulate the environment so would that in this sense be a a form of alchemy then
1: um it you could say so yes um uh, you will notice that you can only um, manipulate it so far Mm -hmm. um you cannot manipulate everything um but Yes, you could say that lucid dreaming would be a form of alchemy. But what uh, the way that I work is um, I help people to get into a flashback to their dream so that they get back into the dream through a flashback. And then we begin to work the dream and that becomes the alchemical work. That becomes the refinement work. And then we are working with what alchemy would call the subtle body not the physical body only, but by way of the subtle body and by way of changing things in your interior experience, things begin to change in your body as well. That's why we had the Santa Barbara Healing Sanctuary that um, is at the moment on hiatus because of COVID, um, where we work with people who have physical uh, physical uh, illnesses, uh, like... um, MS or Parkinson's and uh, by working on the imagination, by working on their dreaming, we can affect to a certain degree, not entirely, but we can affect their, um, their illness. So um, that is a way that alchemy can be used today.
2: Would that be like a way you could treat um, a survivor who is stressed or PTSD or something like that too?
1: Yes, absolutely, because um, uh, they are caught in um, in a dream, in in a re- repetitive dream, right? It's like a nightmare. Mm-hmm. You're in a nightmare, but you're just awake in the nightmare, right? right? And so, um, as you're working on that nightmare, in um, in a way, you have to watch out. Um, uh, frequently um, when a person is heavily traumatized, you cannot work directly on the trauma because if you start to work directly on the trauma, the person gets re-traumatized. Right. So um, the way that I work alchemically is that I move them out of the perspective of identification with what happened to another perspective. Like, for instance, if a person um, has been... Uh, has been raped, for instance, um, and uh, uh, I will not go back to that that moment, but uh, I might go back to um, the room, and in the room, I will not have them focus on what happened there, but on the closet over there. There's a closet over there. Mm-hmm. And you begin to feel the presence of the closet, and what we're doing through embodied imagination is you begin to sense deeply into the presence of the closet until you become identified with the closet. As you're now identified with the closet then from that perspective you can begin to feel what's going on over there. Not directly but in peripheral vision because you're now identified with this part of the image so what i help people to do is to get out of the identification with the image as it happens because you can't do that you just re-traumatize the person but to move out into an other identification in the image that's the basis of embodied imagination is that you can move into different perspectives like if you have a dream in which you're chased by a dog and the dog is very aggressive and you're scared and you run away then you can identify with that "Ah," running away but also with the aggression of the dog and then you can feel it at the same time and something begins to happen something begins to change because now you can feel it at the same time but the idea is that you can move out of the identification that you're in and that's okay. uh,
2: so by mm-hmm. identifying with a closet you've taken them to a safe space and so now with they with their peripheral vision see the attack as an attack and you they understand that
1: have... entirely yes exactly what i mean i mean okay. so they,
2: they see they I'll, had no I'll, responsibility I'll, for that
1: i'll send the i'll send the invoice
2: yeah, there you go Wait, send it to mike he's he's my oh enemy. yeah send okay. it to me there we go send it to mike
0: <laughs> so uh we do have a question here out of the chat room this is from alina she asks, what does robert think about seeing shadow people during sleep
1: Hmm, that's very interesting um the first thing that i would that i would do is to focus on these shadow people i i never let me start start out I have no idea what dreams mean. In my okay. fifty years of working with dreams, I understand them less and less. So my first answer is: I so don't no do any dream interpretation or anything like that. None, none, okay. none. What that I do is questions. I help. <laughs> yes, yeah, I help people to go back to the dream, to flash back to the dream. So if this um, questioner has um, shadow people in the dream that are I don't know what they are, but uh, I would help her, him, to go back to this place, the environment. I will ask, what is it like? Where where are you? What, uh, uh, what is the light like? Are you inside or outside? I begin to ask questions. Then the environment begins to reestablish itself. Then I begin to sense the presence of the people and maybe the person is afraid of it. So I first have her, him, feel the fear of the shadow people. But then what I help them to do is to focus on the shadow people and move the perspective away from self to the shadow people so you can begin to feel the inner life of the shadow people and what the shadow people experience. And as you begin to sense what the shadow people experience, you're in a completely different world than you were when you were just looking at them. So that's how I would work with it. Oh, that's
2: cool. I've never liked the dream interpretation books because I think they're it just doesn't jahoo-y. work. No, no, it's it's individual. Like a bird can mean one thing to a person and something totally different Absolutely. to another. It could be totally. freedom or it could be dinner. I mean, you know, yeah. you can't get that out of the book.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hmm. No, therefore, it's um, one of the na- one of the things about um, about alchemy and about dreaming is it's always particular. You always work on something particular. It's a particular bird. That bird is green. Ah. That bird over there is a yellow bird. Now, the, this green bird and the yellow bird are in different places. So if you begin to identify with the yellow bird over there, you get a different experience than if you identify with the green bird over there. The idea is that you can get out of your habitual consciousness. We are locked in our habits of consciousness. And this work, what alchemy also does, is it gets you out of your habits of consciousness into strange other consciousness because, as I said in the beginning, um, all the metals are alive because the metals are the seeds of the planets. So um, uh, Venus planted copper in the Earth. That is the seed of Venus. So that is love and beauty and everything that is related to Venus is implanted in the Earth as copper and the sun implanted gold and all the planets implanted their seeds and these seeds are alive and they are very potent and the alchemist can concentrate them because the notion in alchemy is that all metals desire to become gold and the alchemist will enhance that desire
2: well that's interesting
1: hmm. yeah
2: cool.
0: that's absolutely fascinating um when it comes to dreaming, there are a lot of theories these days as to what's happening while you're dreaming. Some people believe that, um, that it's not just happening in the mind. Some believe that you, know, you may be communicating with some sort of source. Other people believe that you may actually be uh, moving into uh, another dimension, another place in space time where you are you know, acting these things out. Um, I know you say you don't do dream interpretation, but what do you think dreams actually are?
1: I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I just, I just know, I just know that they are. I know that they are real environments in which we find ourselves. We have real experiences. Um, we encounter things that clearly aren't us, that are different, and that behave different. And we can learn a great deal from working with dreams, but what dreams are is a cultural question. Like a scientist Mm -hmm. may say, there are quakes in the brainstem that we're trying to make sense of. There are people that are saying it's communication with the ancestors. There are people that are saying it's a prediction of the future. There are people that are saying um, it is your psychological makeup that comes, uh, that comes to the fore. All these things say something about the culture that the person is in who you're asking. So um, it doesn't interest me that much. I just, I'm a phenomenologist. Phenomenology means that I am um, studying experience. I'm only interested in what people experience. So when a person tells me that, In a dream, they meet a lion. Then I go from the fact that they're meeting that lion in the dream. That's their experience. So that's where I'm going. I'm not going to say, oh, that is the solar animal or that is your aggression or whatever. No, that's nonsense. No, it's a lion. (laughs) And so therefore, we have to see that lion. And there are other people that say uh, that let the lion talk. Most lions don't speak English. You have to see that as a real lion it is not a physical lion because you woke up it's a quasi physical lion but it is no no less alive than a physical lion we meet these living beings in our dreams these living entities that's all i know
0: okay, okay. fair enough fair enough but yeah. what about when <laughs> you, when you do dream of the future when you have you know like what people call a premonition. And and I've had this happen before where there's, you know, within a dream, a place that I've gone to and have seen and experienced and months later, all of a sudden, boom, I'm in that place. And I had no idea of this place before saw it in my dream. And when, once I got there, this is that place I dreamt about three months ago or whatever it was.
1: Mm -hmm. What kind of experience is that? Um, Well, um, my scientific explanation of it is that it's weird. It's really weird. <laughs> that's really scientific. And, yes, I like you. <laughs> yeah, and so um, uh, you can you can come up with all kinds of, but we—it's a mystery. You mm-hmm. are immediately when you see, oh my god, déjà vu! I've been here before. You are immediately struck by the sense of the mysterious. So yes. you feel the mysterious. Now you can try to explain it people will now these days, because we're all into um, misunderstandings of quantum physics, um, uh, will say well in 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 the quantum world, there is no uh, there is no time and things can happen uh, in one world before they happen in another world. that is possible. It is entirely possible. but I, I'm more interested in how mysterious this is. There's so many things that we don't understand. It happens. These kind of things, these kind of precognitions happen. The the problem about them is that that you don't know when they will happen. There was a very famous seer who could see the future in Prevorst in Germany. And she was predicting the future all the time. And things as she said would happen exactly the way um, uh, that she was uh, predicting them. And uh, so she became very famous. And then she had a vision of a particular building burning down. And so they put police cordon around the building for a long period of time, but nothing happened. So they thought she was wrong. And then it happened years later. So you never know when it's going to happen. She could apparently, she was in touch with something she could see something but she didn't know when it was going to happen and uh, that is always the problem i had um, when i was training in zurich in the in the 70s um you would make an appointment with somebody and uh, you would agree to meet and go to a restaurant and uh, they wouldn't show up and why wouldn't they show up because they had a dream that um a bus exploded and so they wouldn't go out um but yeah, mm-hmm. and so uh, I, you can become superstitious in that way. Um, I think that we should stay with the sense that this is really odd, that that we have these visions and capacities that we do not understand. Science says that it's impossible, but that's just science. <laughs> um, it just happens. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Science cannot deal with out-of-control facts.
2: Mm
0: i definitely agree with that uh, <laughs> if, you, if you can't set up a control object then you know th- then yeah, they don't know what to yeah. do but um right. but no i i understand you know from that but
1: i love science let me, let me but you love me science absolutely, yeah. yeah i love science mm-hmm.
0: no so do i I, mean, I have like michio kaku's books sitting here on my desk so mm-hmm. I, I love yeah. a lot of his work but um yeah. but no i totally understand from that woman's uh point of view though you know, not knowing when exactly something would happen because uh, again i've had several dreams in in the past in which the dream actually came true or at least some you know significant element of it yeah, came true but, but i is, could never tell sometimes it was a couple of years sometimes it was a couple of months yeah yeah
1: but the, the 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 thing is did you know at the time that you had the dream the next morning that this was a precognitive dream no. See, that's the point. That is the problem. These kind of things, um, what happens very often is that you you have a dream about somebody and they call you the next day. But at other times you have dreams about somebody and they never call. So um, uh, you don't know which dreams are precognitive and which aren't. I once worked with one person who... Could differentiate a little bit. She said the precognitive dreams felt a little bit different, and and mm. uh, she felt genuine. But most people cannot differentiate. You cannot differentiate between what's an ordinary dream and what's a precognitive dream. That's the problem.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Because yeah, sure, ninety-nine percent of my dreams are just.
1: You know, oh, I, they, I don't they, know if I call them
0: normal dreams, but they just, <laughs> they just end up being a dream, and other yeah. ones that you know that are precognitive yeah you mm-hmm. have no idea that that they are at the time exactly. so we have a, we have another question here out of the chat room this is from sarah Yusuf. she says human beings seem to be driven towards a form of evolution through alchemy can a person change the point of altering themselves to being interdimensional entering a connected universe
1: mm. um well uh i think that uh it, it, it depends. Um, that's always, that's always yeah. a good answer. It's always a good way to begin. Um, um, uh, if you take that the only real world is a physical world, and that the universes are connected in a physical way, and so that the multiverse is a physical event, then maybe. But If you take that there are many kinds and sorts of realities and that physical reality is not the only reality, then you are in a different universe every night that you're asleep, every night that you're dreaming, you're in another universe, you're in a connected universe, it's somehow connected, it is not a physical universe, it's a quasi physical universe, but it's pretty real when you're in it. And so therefore, it's um, if you believe that the only reality is physical reality, then your guess is as good as mine. If you believe that there are realities that are non-physical realities and that are just as real, then I would say absolutely, and it happens to you every night.
2: Okay, now I have two questions. Well, two and a half. Good. good. Two point three, and three five. <laughs> <laughs> what? just a? Uh, could a um, flashback be the same thing as a déjà vu? That's just a yes or no.
0: Um, Is that your half?
1: That, that's my three quarters of a question. That's your three okay. quarters. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that in um, in psychiatry, they would say that it's different. Okay. Um, um, yes. Because I didn't, they would Give it a different definition.
2: Yeah, I'm studying for my master. Well, I was studying for my master's in psychology. I didn't get quite that far. So <laughs> I was just curious about that. Now, uh, my other question was, do you think- um, There's somebody
1: think- who wrote something very funny. She, yeah. This person says, I'll put what it back dream, it? Yeah, I, I dream usually that I'm flying, but it hasn't happened yet. But it has happened. The whole point is that what I'm trying to make, it has happened because in the dream, you're actually flying. You have the experience of flying. And uh, so we have to get away from the notion that the only reality is physical reality.
2: Oh, no. Okay. So that, that uh, It's perfect. It's a segue into my question. right
0: There you there. go. Good. Very
2: good. <laughs> now, what was it? Um oh geez. It was on the tip of my tongue. Oh yeah, you um I heard you mention a word and I probably am not going to say it correctly. So could you define it once I get my question out there? I think it was negro or Niagara. Ni- mm. Hold on. Uh Negredo. It Negredo? That's it. Okay. Do you think humanity is in a state of that word you just said? And if yeah. it is, is it because of uh, maybe eradication, like overpopulation? Is there a division between people who only think in the reality and people who think outside the box? And would that be part of the global awakening that people keep talking about? That's that's one question.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'll be over here. So. <laughs> <yes>. uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I um, The whole notion of global awakening I, I, I don't know about it. I think that there's an incredible global change going on. Um, if we are waking up from our deep sleep, I do not know. Um, but uh, I, um, I, I do think that um, there are periods of Negredo. Let me explain Negredo.
2: Yes Negredo
1: <laughs> is the black of night. When we're talking about degrado, we're not talking about black in the racial sense. We're talking about black in the sense of night. So it is a moment where everything falls apart. It is a moment where everything is in a state of rot. There's a, mo- it's a moment that everything is in a state of decomposition. And these moments have to happen in order for new things to come into being because the old has to decompose, has to go to the compost pile and the compost pile is the negredo. it has to go to the compost piles for something new to emerge. So um, I think that as we have all in the world been going through COVID, that certainly has a negredo aspect. It has an aspect of things falling apart, things rotting, lots of dying, all that kind of stuff is relating in a lot of polarization Um, because it falls apart so things begin to polarize and we're living like we're living in a magnet with two poles and you're in one pole or in another pole and the poles are are like this against each other it's also part of the negredo, part of the falling apart so yes that is happening but there's also a lot of other things going on the interesting thing about alchemy is that one some of the great alchemical Uh, furnaces had 64 different compartments that were all cooking at different rates were all cooking different things were all melting different things so there are so many things going on at the same time so to say that the whole world is going to what the Indians would say a Kali Yuga I don't know (laughs) I don't think so I think that there are thousands of things going on simultaneously okay so that's a definite maybe. So it's a definite, <laughs> absolute, <laughs> totally convinced maybe.
2: Okay. Because I was trying to think about that today and I'm thinking, well, you know, people who, well, I don't want to dismiss. myself. I'm in Texas. We're very anti-mask, anti-vaccination, mm-hmm. anti-people. Yeah. Don't, don't <laughs> Anti- get me started.
0: People. Yeah.
2: yeah. Let's hear it for the cows. <laughs> Woo-hoo. So yeah. um, there's that mindset going on and I see all that playing in with COVID and then there's other people who are thinking trying or trying to think globally, you know, solutions for humanity. How can we eradicate this? And it kind of seems like those uh, myopic mindsets. And I mean that with love in my heart, um, are kind of dying and fading away. So, uh, I didn't know if that was like a a part of the division, you know, with the global waking up, like people are coming to their senses. Finally, hopefully.
1: Um, (laughs) Well, I don't know what newspapers you read, but people coming to the census, <laughs> I don't see that very much. I okay. I see, um, I see uh, we're on the verge of war in Europe.
2: Um,
1: oh, no. There are um, all kinds of things happening in the Middle East. There are horrible things happening in India. There are terrible things happening in China. So I don't know if we're at the verge of global awakening. There are a lot of horrible things going on. And... Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we should always keep that in mind, that there are difficult things going on at the moment. And then there are amazing things going on, amazing people that are doing extraordinary things that are helping the planet in the most beautiful ways. It's all going on at the same time. We have this notion that it has to be one or the other. That's that polarization that comes from the negredo. But no. It's all happening at the same time and you have to live with the fact that everything's happening at the same time and 64 ovens are boiling and melting things at the same time.
2: So it's a balance. We need to stick
1: balanced. Mm, I sometimes or it's very dark unbalanced. in the light. Yeah, it's true. Well, yes, uh, no. It's uh, it, uh, my 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 interest is in what is called complexity theory, and complexity theory is th- uh, about th- the celebration of being out of balance because <laughs> um, uh, because it is like falling into the future. It's not you're not in balance, but you we are falling into the future. It's like falling in love. It is moving forward, and you're always a little bit off balance, and you have to live with the fact that. You're off balance. And then you are in balance at a moment, but absolute balance is death.
2: Oh. Yeah. I, I've always heard that you're always alive when you're at the edge of your comfort zone, like when you don't exactly. know what's going to happen. That's that so.
1: is complexity theory right there.
2: Well, I'm gonna have to change majors now. Okay, so I have one other <laughs> there question. You go. Uh I got it, you know, I'm halfway through. Um the other thing I wanted to ask you about was uh neo. Platonism, I think.
1: Neoplatonism. Yes.
2: Yes. Do you think that's coming back?
1: Um, Because I I don't hear it
2: called that, but I hear more people talking about things like that.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, let me first explain, if I can, a little bit about what Neoplatonism is, because for most people, it must be a very unfamiliar term. Um, Neoplatonism was... um, was developed in the third century, um, second and third century by Plotinus, and uh, it, it followed up on Plato. And it was the sense that um, uh, that everything had soul, that, that that everything in the world was ensouled, and that um, you could uh, you could connect to the soul of the world, you could connect to the gods through being in the world and Thereby you could, this is a very particular form of Neoplatonism that I espouse, which is uh, from um, an, a philosopher called Iamblichus, that you are actually with your body, you can experience the gods and you can experience this, uh, this alien imagination. And so um, if you are moving through the world where you realize everything around you is animated. Everything around you is alive. This computer that you're looking at right now is alive in a way that it it carries its own animation. Um, Then you're in that uh, Neoplatonic notion that soul is everywhere. Soul is not just in us. Everything carries soul. And that would be the alchemical perspective because many of the alchemists would be called um, also Neoplatonists in the way that Um, the creative spark is in everything. So you can start working on anything as long as it fascinates you. You can work on anything and out of that, the creative spark will come to the surface. So um, uh, yes, I think in that way, there are more and more people that I know who are interested in getting back to the soul of the world and um that creates a very different sense of ecology because if everything is alive around you you cannot just go into a rainforest and mow everything down because it's alive
2: so do you think the creative imagination is um similar to um law of attraction like how you try and manifest if you visualize it you manifest it is that along the like the
1: esther hicks Um, and all that um i uh um Yes, but on a much earlier level. Um, there okay. was the notion of the law of attraction is ancient. And mm-hmm. um, it is that all bodies in the in the universe are pulled towards each other. There is a sense that everything is pulling together. And um, Newton added calculus and called it gravity. And so... Um, Uh, That is the law of attraction is basically about gravity, that everything pulls together. Um, This notion that you can manifest, yes, you can manifest to a certain point um, in the way that you can focus and concentrate and work hard on something and pull it towards you. And then sometimes it actually happens. The danger that I find with notions of the law of attraction, as it is uh, professed by many people now, is that. Um, if you are, if you get cancer, then um, you must have attracted that to yourself. And then suddenly, it becomes something that you also start to feel guilty about. So the law of attraction may work to a certain degree. You can make yourself into a magnet that begins to attract things, but it is not that if something bad happens to you, you attracted that to yourself. That I find despicable.
2: right, I agree. Yeah, when we had the, uh, I volunteered. I got the the first COVID shots and everything, and then we had to get the booster. And when I went to get the booster, the man was like, "Oh, you're just going to take a couple of days off because it's going to kick your butt and you're gonna you're gonna be sick." And I told him, "No, I'm not." And he goes, "Oh no, mm-hmm. everyone's sick." It's like, "Not me. Nothing happened to me." All right. I mean, so you mm-hmm. can use this also for healing.
1: Yes. Well, that's um, it's called placebo. Okay. And um, pl- placebo is very, very important. I am not knocking placebo. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there are currently many, many very good scientific studies about placebo that expectation does influence what happens to you. So that if you are, um, if you give a person a um, uh, morphine in front of them, then you have to give half the dose than if you give it behind them. So Uh-oh. if you see it, it works much better than if you don't see it. And mm-hmm. um, there are many ways that um, uh, uh, that the placebo effect works. And so, um, yes, it, it can be that um, by your conviction, you did not get a reaction. It could also be that you just didn't get a reaction. Yeah, but <laughs> right? it's my and my so, lifestyle of diet. Coke. Not everybody does. <laughs> so yes.
2: Yeah, diet coke yeah. is going to be the cure. Mark my words. Yeah.
1: Um, okay. So I I I think that um, the placebo effect is very very important and um, it's talked down upon, but the placebo effect actually is getting stronger and stronger and more and more. Uh, clinical trials are being pulled because they cannot outperform placebo. We now know that um, uh, that uh, the placebo effect of Prozac is greater than the actual effect of Prozac when Prozac just began. So mm-hmm. placebo is there all the time. It is a form of imagination. It's embodied imagination. It's the way that an image that you have that you were in an image, right? Let's say Mm -hmm. that it actually was happening because you had that feeling. You were in the image of, it's not going to happen to me. That's an image, right? So you were in that image, and that image could have had, if it actually did, could have had physical effects. Images have physical effects, and those physical effects are either called placebo or nocebo. Nocebo is the opposite of placebo, where Mm. things go really bad, when uh, a doctor tells you you have three weeks to live, it's not good.
2: Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Lots to think about.
0: Fantastic. So we have a little bit more than 10 minutes left in the show. And uh, Robert, uh, you pioneered the embodied imagination method. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about what this method is.
1: Um, Embodied imagination is about the interface between imagination and body um so that um everything that comes to you as an image like for instance in a dream has effects on your body everything that happens to your body has effects on your imagination and the imagination the embodied imagination isn't as, as a technique is that um uh, the way I see it is that when you are in a real image, like a real image is like a dream image. A dream image is a real image. It's an environment that where you find yourself that you experience as real. That's a real image. Um, you can move out of your habits of consciousness. your habits of consciousness is the story that you tell yourself over and over again. It's very important if you want to drive a car, you have to have habits. But it also, if you are in a creative process, your habits of consciousness may really hamper you. So you can get out of that habitual perspective by beginning to identify with other characters in the image, with other presences in the image. So the the craft and the art of embodied imagination is to move out of your habitual perspective into other perspectives. And as you see and feel and shift perspectives, then the whole world around you is different. So for instance, if you read Red sulphur, the book that I've just ri- um, I've just written, you will be in another world. you will be in a 17th century world where all kinds of magical things are described as fact and it is I, I wrote it to show that um, if what the uh, what the alchemists say was true, then this world would be a magical world. And um, it starts actually, with, um, it starts with a a letter that was written by um, one of the greatest philosophers of the second millennium, Benedict Spinoza. And Spinoza wrote a letter where he went to a goldsmith to inquire after um, an alchemical transformation that had taken place. So actually he was looking at a, a transformation from, uh, silver to gold that had taken place that the silversmith swore by that the mint master of the netherlands who was which was at that moment one of the greatest powers in the world the mint masters of the netherlands confirmed that it was actual gold that it had been silver before and it became gold so i took that if that's really true and some of the great minds of that era say it's true um, Robert Boyle said it was true, and he is the founder of chemistry, If it, if it, and, and Newton was an alchemist, he said it was true, let's take them by their wor- words, if that's true, then there is a whole world out there that we know nothing about, and let's explore it, and the only way you can explore it is through fiction, so that is the way that you can embody the imagination. One of the ways I embodied the imagination is listening to the characters, let them speak, wait until they had something to say. I didn't say anything. I just watched their world. So in that, they embodied the imagination and I just was the scribe.
0: Okay, so that's, that's interesting, because uh, I'm, I'm a writer as well. And I have, um, you know, some of my work is fiction, most of it's nonfiction, but I have a couple of fiction pieces. So, um, so I find that fascinating that you've basically, you know, put together this world that um, I, I guess exists in your in your mind, in your imagination, and you're letting that play out, and you're essentially writing what you see, and that has become your book.
1: Yes. And uh, I think that for, for many fiction writers, that's the way you do it. You let mm-hmm. your characters talk. And uh, I can very clearly see when when my characters are not doing the talking, but when I'm doing the talking, it's much less interesting. It's much more interesting when the characters talk. So I have to push put myself over there. What I give my characters is my writing skills because I've written twelve books, so I, I, I have some writing skills, and I give them over to the characters and let them use it. But I think uh, when I write, I'm much more boring. <laughs> no,
0: uh, I get it. I get it, though. Uh, yeah. But uh, how how do you use that then for, say, trying to solve a, an everyday problem in your life?
1: Mm-hmm. Um. Well, uh, for instance, I, I um, was talking about um, being chased by a dog. A person who had that dream. Now, this person is going um, through lots of ups and downs. She gets very angry, and um, and bites everyone. And, rah, and at the other moments, she's scared out of her mind. She doesn't know how fast to run. Now, and if we work the dream. From the perspective of both the one who's running and the one who's biting, then she can hold both of those together and a transformation begins to happen in an alchemical way throughout their body where she can, instead of being either um, terrified or aggressive, where she can feel suddenly alert and she feels alert throughout her body and that gives her a very different way of being in the world she's now different as a teacher that she is she's different with her children she's different in her trying to understand the world so everything changes because she's holding these two elements together at the same time so that's the way you can work with it
0: okay fascinating Uh, victoria you have any follow-ups so we're getting towards the end. We only have like five minutes left. So I want to make oh, sure that okay. it's
2: yeah. involuntary imagination. The same thing as channeling. Woo-hoo. Let's get into the yeah. woo
1: woo. <laughs> um, the involuntary imagination is um, I take dreaming as my example of the involuntary imagination. You have very little or no influence over it Um, when you're talking about um, uh, lucid dreams then you have a little bit of influence over it Um, Mm -hmm. but usually the um, involuntary imagination you do not have uh, influence over it comes to you you're part of it you're embedded in it it's a world around you Um, channeling goes from a a particular metaphysical perspective the metaphysical perspective is that you are um, getting truth that comes to you from another reality and um, you're taking in that truth from another reality so that is a particular metaphysical setup so in that way you could say yes Channeling is a form of involuntary imagination. But a channeler will say to you, no, it's not imagination. A channeler will say, no, it's truth that is coming to me from another world. So it is about what perspective you're in. Um, my, uh, I am uh, what I call a radical agnostic. I absolutely to the bottom of my feet don't know. So I don't know if it comes from another world. I just know that it happens to the person.
0: I appreciate that honesty Yeah, because yeah. there are too. a lot of people that, that we talk to over that we have talked to over the years that, you know, think that they have every single answer, but the fact that you're willing to say, Hey, I don't know what it is. It happens. Yes. I don't know for sure what it is. It is fantastic. Yeah. And I love that.
1: Oh, yes. good. Well, it's my life. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Validation so, is
2: good. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. So we got about two minutes left. Um, Robert, where can people find you? we've been putting um, the youngplatform.com down there on the uh, on the yes, bar yes
1: i think that that's the best way i have um, hundreds of hours of teaching on alchemy on youngplatform.com and um so i think that people can find me there if people are interested in uh, red sulfur which i hope you are um you can find that at amazon um and uh, go to the go to the revised second edition because after I'd written everything up, after the whole thing became revealed to me, I had to change things in the beginning because things that were backstory in the beginning had to become upfront. So take the second revised edition and you can find all that at Amazon. And um, I hope you look it up. And I um, think youngplatform.com for all my um, so-called intellectual work.
0: Fantastic. So this cover here, this is the first edition. Don't, that's the don't first edition.
1: And don't buy this one. <laughs> buy the other one. <laughs> great, great. Well, Robert,
0: it was really fantastic talking with you this evening. I think we learned it was a lot. So much fun. Oh, I yeah. appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yes. I liked it.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, visit Robert Youngplatform.com. You know, J-U-N-G, like Carl Young platform.com. And uh Robert, again, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me. Enjoy. Nice to meet you. Well, I guess it's
0: the middle of the day there, so so have have a great day. (laughs) Good morning. Bye-bye now.
1: Bye.